0: Live from Melbourne, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. My guest today is Raphael Daskalo. Raf is a scholar of medieval Jewish thought. His research is focused primarily on medieval Jewish philosophy and Biblical Interpretation in the Islamic World. Raf, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. The pleasure is mine, thank you, thank you for having me. We uh, talked a bit uh, in advance of this about directions we could take this show, Uh, we've spoken in the past a bunch, and um, something that came through is this idea of uh, approaches to spirituality after the loss of innocence. So what, what does that theme mean to you? So we
1: live in strange times. The times have been strange for a couple of centuries, I think, but they're, but they're strange now, as strange now as ever, um, in the sense that the, those of us who grew up in, sort of relative, in traditional religions, even if one grew up in the dominant Christian culture, but with some actual Christian affiliation, um, or in a Jewish context like uh, like me or uh, in a Muslim context or even a Buddhist context we now think historically those of us in in the West think in a particular way historically and we live in the wake of certain developments in how we understand the historical development of these religious traditions and the way that we understand them is doesn't map onto the traditional teachings, to the traditional way that Jews or Christians or Muslims or Buddhists or uh, have understood their um, their traditions. Their in the own past. religious past. Yeah. So it's okay. so it, it's at odds with traditional historiography. I the, the traditional narratives of how things happened. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that we have a, a new model of looking at the universe and looking at uh, its structure, uh, what, you know, what uh, the relationship between the Earth and the sun and the other, what used to be the, uh, the moving um, stars, what, what uh, we now see as the planets in our solar system um, revolving around the sun, like us. Um, you know, we're looking at a different universe. I mean, really, we're looking at a different universe from, from that which we were looking at even just over a century ago. Meaning, like, even a century ago, what was beyond the solar system was, was not clear. Yeah. Um, and and uh, things have vastly expanded. So we're looking at a world that looks very different from the traditional cosmologies. And we're looking at history... That doesn't map comfortably onto traditional historiography, right? So for a lot of people who encounter that, I'd say for the vast majority of people who who encounter that, there seems to be a choice that needs to be made between those things. Okay. Uh, One either needs to reject aspects of the of the contemporary account, or Um, one needs to reject one's religious tradition, or one's one's spiritual tradition, whatever whatever tradition that is. Um, And then people sort of, you can negotiate, how much do I want to buy in any way? How much do I want to participate in any way? But really, people see internally, I think there's a choice between one or the other. Okay. Yeah. Um, I,
0: I can relate to that.
1: Yeah. So, I guess in a way, I want to ask the question of whether that should really be a choice. Um, meaning, whether you really have to give up either. I mean, obviously, I can't both believe that the Earth revolves around the Sun and that the Sun revolves around the Earth, you know, right? I can't, I can't both affirm a traditional, um, sort of ancient or medieval cosmology and the contemporary cosmology that we have. I, obviously, I have to make some kind of a choice, right? But does that really mean that I have to buy out of my spiritual tradition because it's wrong? Right. Right? Um, and so, so in, in approaching that question, I'll tell a personal narrative. Here's a personal narrative. My, So, I grew up in a non-observant Jewish home, right? But in, in an immigrant family, in an immigrant community so it was very much not acculturated to the majority the majority culture mm-hmm. right um it was pretty acculturated in, into european into Euro- certain european cultures right so um but but it was not a part of the the dominant we i did not grow up in homes that were clearly part of the dominant culture it was an immigrant home a jewish that my family's jewish um And I went to public schools, uh, but already before, a couple of years before my Bar Mitzvah, by a couple of years before my Bar Mitzvah. So I was about, um, by the time I was about 11, I was going to synagogue regularly um, with my grandfather and with friends, and I was hanging out in the Chabad community, and I started hanging out shortly after my bar mitzvah, also in in Adas in Sydney, that's an ultra-orthodox Hungarian community. Um, And um, so I was hanging out pretty much in the ultra-orthodox Jewish community in Sydney, but living in a non-observant home and becoming increasingly personally observant, both in the years leading up to my bar mitzvah and the year or so after. Until about about a year after, when I was about fourteen years old, I took on um, a much fuller observance. I actually thought that my family would resist it more, and when it came up up explicitly as a conversation, and I found that they didn't resist me, you know, do, doing doing that more. You know, not um, refraining from eating non kosher food um, to a much greater degree, and and keeping Shabbat. You know, that that was. They weren't providing resistance to that, so I became... I took it on.
0: Wait, so they weren't providing resistance, and so you went all out at it? Yeah, it? pretty much. Okay, so like, I think the standard teenage narrative would be, I discovered oh. my parents weren't resisting. I, I decided <laughs> why bother. <laughs> exactly.
1: I did not have a rebellious bone in my body. I, this was not a rebellion for me. Not, okay. a, not at all. And th- people actually said to my mother, oh, it's just a rebellion, and she knew that it wasn't. Because she knew that I wasn't rebellious. She could see that I wasn't rebellious. And when it came up as a conversation with my aunt who was making fun of me for partially keeping things and partially not, Um, I said to her, Listen, my parents make dinner for me. I can't not eat the dinner they make for me. You know, and um and my mother overheard and she said, Listen, if you wanted to keep kosher, we'll find a way of keeping kosher. You know, and that's and so. I but I was I was a good boy in the sense that I, I wanted to eat my parents dinner I want I didn't want to cause them trouble right you know? um, so anyway I took on a fuller degree of observance and um, and started going to B'nai Kiva, a religious youth movement and just kept on hanging out in different parts of the religious community And I sort of grew up between my parents homes my parents had divorced between my parents homes on the one hand and the religious community on the other, and with a group of religious friends in public school, which at the time was actually very common. There were a lot of religious kids in public schools. And And they found um, their own little cartels? Well, it was was actually quite interesting. You had, at Sydney Boys High, there were some very ultra-Orthodox kids, I mean, kids from very ultra-Orthodox families. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them had you know like their closest friends were the Korean and Chinese kids and they had both sort of a group of Jewish friends and a group of non-jewish friends that was very normal um, and but it was actually a very ethnically divided school as well but the major division the major hostility was between the Anglo kids and everybody else that was the ma- that was the major hostility within the non anglo um, Sort of scene, the the boundaries could be crossed, but within, but but uh, it was it was a very ethnically divided school. There were also Anglo's outside of the Anglo scene. They were sort of the the um, nerdy intellectuals, and they were by default sort of asian or jewish (laughs) that's how it was um and um and the jews were asian we were we were like it was very clear which side it was majority east asian the school and then and minority of anglo kids and the jews were very clearly on the on the east asian side of the divide yeah unless you were very acculturated but i wasn't i was from an immigrant home so even if i didn't become observant i was not on the Anglo side. And it was was very, very clear. It was a very strange school. Uh, So anyway, so I was at school, I was was going to uh, these, I was hanging out in the religious community. And because it happened, it actually happened at a sort of a pre-rational level. Like I was not, I didn't think about why I wanted to become religious. I was just drawn to it. Mm. Now in retrospect, I can see a couple of the reasons. And I think one of the reasons was that my family was so uncomfortable in their Jewishness. In some ways, they're very Jewish, especially my father. It's very central to his, to his identity. He sees the world through the eyes of a Jew. But, um, but there's a sort of a, a discomfort and a bit of... Um, I don't know about, about shame, but certainly fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and hanging out with these in the religious community, especially with Chabad, was so liberating. These were people who had fun being Jews, Had fun with it, and it was just—it was uh, just—it was somehow—it was really liberating for me. I think—I think there was something, I felt intuitively that there was something healthy, in just being very openly, very happily Jewish and not very unselfconscious about it. Yeah, unselfconscious. um, But also, also the conversations people were having. Other people in my life weren't really having conversations about the soul and life and death, and Ooh. things like that, and there were conversations I was interested in, you know, I wanted yeah. to have those
0: conversations. It's not, it's not done in polite company. Yeah, yeah,
1: and so, certainly not, you know, in, the, in my public school social crew, it was, no, you didn't sit around and talk about the soul and life and death, I was into tabletop wall gaming in my, in my public school social. 40, 40K? 40K, yeah, 40K. Yeah, not, not the fantasy version just 40 k
0: uh, what was your did you have any an, an opinion like politically about the emperor
1: <sighs> about the emperor um well, yeah, yeah i was I was pretty much on the emperor's side okay but I was more into now you you're, you're, hmm? you're- I was a Hmm? hm you're the <laughs> yeah, um, but anyway, so the, so but I was actually much more into painting the figurines than I was into playing the game. I played the game because you had to play the game, but like uh, I was much more
0: into. painting Well, once you dress them up, they have to have somewhere to go. So no battle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, so so these the people were having the conversations you want to have, yeah. you know, living the Judaism you wanted to live, and you sort of. Um, so I became be... a yeah.
1: I became a part of that, right. and, and and it became a part of me. And so it's a bit weird because most, I think for most, on the one hand, I'm not from a religious home, but on the other hand, the transformation that I went to when I, that I went through when I started maturing intellectually a bit more was the kind of transformation that a religious kid went through, not that a, a kid growing up in a secular environment went through, in the sense that I had to make sense of a religious life that I'd already taken on through you know through these experiences of learning things that didn't sit comfortably with it as opposed to the opposite as opposed to growing up in a secular environment and then encountering once i had sort of like formed a sense of myself asking the questions about my relationship to such questions of spirituality or whatever so so
0: if i if i get you right what you're saying is even though you grew up in, in a more secular family you you sort of swung religious as it were young enough that when it came time to deal with the big questions you're doing it from a religious perspective exactly okay
1: so usually in a jewish context the world is divided into in a religious context Mm -hmm. if you're an observant jew the world is divided into bts and ffbs right Baltuvis and from from birth you either grow up religious and and you know that's ffb you're from from birth or you make a decision at some point in your life to become religious. But I didn't exactly make a decision. I just started hanging out, right. you know, and, I, and became religious at a very early stage. And so I sort of fit... I, I see myself as fitting sort of in between. I don't... I'm not... I didn't have the experiences of growing up within a religious family, which in some ways for me is very liberating, right? I never had a thrust upon me. Nobody ever was upset with me if I didn't do X or Y. It was my business. It wasn't my parents' business. Um, but the questions that I had to address once I started learning uncomfortable truths were very much coming from the religious perspective, right? I was, I was already a religious kid. So my, my only freak out was that when I was about... What's your nine? 14 years old? 14 to 15? Yeah. I might have just turned 15 and I learned I, I it was very popular to be into the Torah codes right these are the, this is the, the proof that the Torah is divine is that the death of princess Dai or you know the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin or whatever is is foretold right you you set up the letters however you want to in some kind of uh, configuration and then you find Two letters in a row in Hebrew that spell X or Y or three letters in a row. And, and you say, oh, wow, you know, um, the assassination of Martin Luther King. We found it here in, in, uh, in the Torah. Okay. So I sat with a friend in my year and we started, we thought this was so awesome. And we sat and we started looking at them and going through them. And we fairly quickly came to the realization that this is insane. Complete nonsense. It was just we could figure out all kinds of things. You spell something in Hebrew with two or three letters. There are, no con- there are no vowels. How you set up the letters, you have a bit of freedom with that. I mean, the whole thing was just, it's so arbitrary. And it just, it was, and you could do it with anything. You could, you, I mean, it was just absurd. It, and, it, and sitting down and looking at this, it came very clear, very quickly, that it's absurd. You yeah. know, it's, it's nonsense. And we flipped out. He and I both started, we got very emotional. and We started saying, we're like, you know, we're losing our faith. This is terrible. And uh, I went to one of the counsellors, one of the madrichim, the counsellors in this youth movement, and said, have you ever, you know, I'm having a big, oh, maybe he caught wind of it and approached me or something. He heard that we were freaking out or something, I don't know. But we ended up having a conversation. And he said to me, I'm going to tell you something not only are the torah codes bullshit but there are different versions of the torah and i was like what (laughs) and he says there's the samaritan pentateuch i don't even know where he got this stuff from because like he he never i I don't think he ever studied this stuff in an academic environment i think it was just intellectually curious Mm -hmm. Says there's a samaritan pentateuch that has different versions the Septuagint, the Greek version, has different, different, uh, reflects different versions of the Hebrew. There are, there are the Dead Sea Scrolls found at Qumran. They, have reflect, they reflect different versions of the Hebrew. There are different versions. This stuff exists. You should know it. And, uh, and I don't think it's a reason to freak out. And I said, how is that not a reason to freak out? How are you not freaking out? And he says, look, I think we got the gist. <laughs>
0: I just want to freeze that line and make it a theological position. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So now when when you're coming from the Torah codes where every letter has like cosmic significance or whatever, and you get this guy saying, I think we've got the gist more or less, you know, that is a very strange thing to hear. Very, very strange thing to hear. But I looked at him. And he was, he's a very observant guy. Um, I believe he remains observant to this day. He's living in Israel. Um, and, uh, and I thought, maybe I shouldn't be freaking out. Maybe maybe I should just chill out and keep learning, right? And that was the last time I had a real freak out. Um, yeah, that was the last time.
0: Since then... Well, at, from that point I learned more and more and more uncomfortable truths so this one very casual this one very casual counsellor like, just, just got you through the shadow of the valley of death and you were, you were okay on the other side well, it
1: was almost like an inoculation like every subsequent potential freak out I just thought alright just keep on learning you know, it just—you'll just, get the gist. I get, get the gist, and but I—I I remember as a late teen, I remember that people used to say I—I hung out with a lot of, um, both non-Jewish and, and non-religious Jewish kids, who used to say, "Oh, you're religious, you're religious," you know. And I used to say, "Look, we'll see if I stay religious." I, I made a point of not perceiving myself as committed through time. I made a point of thinking. Right now, this is where I am and I'm learning and that's uh, and that's what I should be doing. Was that an important thing for you to do? I, in retrospect, I think it was. I think in retrospect, it allowed me to explore without a sense, to, to both be devoted and I was devoted. I've always enjoyed um, devotional study and I've always enjoyed... Um, I've, it, saying my prayers and trying to uh mean them and like observing uh i'm I'm speaking in uh in western terminology yeah sure so davening and learning a shtickle Torah, and uh they've always been important to me always important to me and so um and that allowed me to hold that but allow my mind to go where to move freely without a sense that one is stifling the other. Right. Um, and uh, so, in retrospect, I think it was important.
0: Okay. So, you had this, this one freak out <coughs> in, in about year nine, yeah. and then after that, you, you learned things that shook you, but never more in the same more. way. Yeah, well, that, I guess
1: they didn't shake me as much. I do remember one, one case where my high school Tanakh teacher, my high school Bible, Hebrew Bible teacher, um, was teaching. I asked questions about some markings on a page of Hebrew Bible, and he said, "Well, this means that there are other versions that read like this." But uh... and I said, "Other versions." And I, I, I knew that there are other versions, but this is a very orthodox uh, guy referring to this, and I wanted to push him on it. I said, "Other versions." He says, yes, in the medieval period, there were these Masoretes and they standardized the Hebrew text, but there were still other versions. And there were two major schools of Masoretes and, uh, you know, and and I said to him, is this orthodox? And he he, he said, I don't know, but it's true. And uh, and if somebody says to me, it's orthodox that it's unorthodox to think this then I guess I'm not orthodox he said what can I do it's true it's historical fact and all of the Rishonim knew it meaning all of the medieval scholars the medieval scholars of Torah knew it and and then he even showed us a passage in in uh, the passage in the Talmud where it speaks about different versions of the Torah that were kept in the temple, there's a passage where they talk about they different talk words. they
0: talk counting, like, counting from one end to the other, and then the middle letter is this, but in my version, of the middle letter is that. Uh,
1: no, no, but that. there are things like that of minor variants, but this is one where, where they, take, um, they take the um, several scrolls that were kept in the temple, and they determine the authoritative reading by the majority of those scrolls, and there are words. So, Two read Ne'arim, and one reads zatute. So you, so you, so yeah. So the, so the Talmud is totally aware and comfortable that there's been this kind of editing process. Um, the idea of di- of different versions, different Nuschaot, gersaot or um is um,
0: is a given in a lot of the medieval literature. The Rishonim, the medieval commentators, they say this explicitly.
1: I mean it's it's a given. And then you have like specific literature in in the field of sort of Masoretics, or you know, like uh uh what is it, dictuque amim, that sort of like genre of um some of it is linguistic but some of it is um is actually about versions of Torah, and you also have the the Masura itself. So you have the greater and lesser Masorah, Magnan Masorah Parva. Wait, just just so these these are, this is like basically just medieval literature, which is discussing the correct reading, correct readings, accurate readings of the text. But in the course of discussing accurate readings, you also find that they discuss alternatives, right? Right. So that that is just written by written by what mainstream. Jewish
0: medieval commentators? It
1: actually seems to have been a mix of Karaites and Rabbinites, meaning it, meaning the, the Masoretic project. For, for, those, is, for
0: those who don't know what those means, those are basically the jets and sharks of medieval Judaism.
1: <laughs> the,
0: the Rabbinites are
1: Jews who adhere to the rabbinic tradition, the Mishnah and the Talmud and, and its interpreters, and, and um, the Karaites don't subscribe to rabbinic tradition. They have the whole Hebrew Bible, um, and they have their own sort of intellectual interpretive tradition, but it looks like the Masoretic Project was kind of a joint project. It it was not partisan in that
0: sense, um,
1: which is very interesting.
0: So, do the Karaites and the rabbinic Jews today read the same way? Yeah, more or less. That's really interesting
1: so the um so anyway, so that that was another example of seeing a very devoted, very pious man, although in the Sydney Jewish community, I think people question because of his kind of rationalism and brashness, people question his orthodoxy, but I could see that he's a very pious man, hmm. and yet he was totally comfortable with this sort of thing. Um, he was also very comfortable speaking about theological questions of. For example, belief in an interventionist God or uh, some more abstract theology, um, whether it's uh, more transcendent or more imminent, whether, you know, and he was very open to a range of, of things. And he actually made a point. He apologized to me for telling me what he thinks because he thought he was he didn't want to influence. What, what I think, he said, I think it's very important that every individual goes through the process of working this stuff out for themselves. And that, for me, as a, as a late teen, was, I think, very important in giving me the confidence to just go through this process. And again, when I went to yeshiva, they actually um, uh, had a teacher come and, and try to disprove biblical criticism, so the idea of multiple authorship.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but that exposed us to the idea of multiple authorship. i I had no i'd never come across that idea before as an 18 year old i'd never come across that idea and uh so i discussed it with some of the other rabbis it turns out that some of the other rabbis in that particular yeshiva were open to the idea they weren't so disturbed by the idea and that and that sort of validated the attempt for me to just keep on exploring just wait do what I do. What I find meaningful, which is live a fairly religious life, and then and keep on exploring. And um, so, I was very lucky to have just a series of encounters with people that could hold all of this stuff in their head. That could just you know that didn't feel a need to have these boundaries. That the second you cross this, you're a heretic. Mm-hmm. And that sort of allowed me to to just explore. Um, and later, I would encounter thinkers that, um, that try to actually come up with solutions, meaning not to disprove, let's say, biblical criticism, but to find ways that you can be a devoted Jew uh, in a traditional sense and, and accept the findings of biblical criticism. And so, I mean, the two big names in that, but I won't go into the details, but the two big names in that that, that I would mention are uh, Louis Jacobs and, uh, and Mordechai Breuer, Rav Mordechai Breuer, um, from whom I, I had the privilege of actually of learning a bit from him. He had a link to the yeshiva that I was in and, and he used to teach there sometimes on, on festivals. And um, so bo- both of whom passed away not, not very long ago. So it's it's interesting. But um, so they came up with sort of approaches... But I want, rather than coming up with approaches that make it digestible, where you don't have to reject, but you make it digestible, for me, the most meaningful way of approaching it has just been to admit, as many of us have learned to do, very few Jews today, actually with the exception of Chabad, really, try to defend um, geocentric cosmology, right? It's a given that the sun is at the center of the solar system, I don't have to defend the fact that the rabbis thought that the sun revolved around the earth. It doesn't disturb me, right? I I have almost never met a non-Chabad Jew who tries to defend a geocentric model. Mm -hmm. It's just unheard of. So the rabbis, you know, accepted the dominant theories in their time. And it was a given mosaic author single mosaic authorship of the Torah, was a given for the rabbis. It was just a given. That somehow doesn't disturb me. It doesn't disturb me that we now look at the redactional history of this document, this particular book, and we see different layers and different strands, and we can see that the history is more of its composition is more complicated. Um, and in a way... That ability to identify different strands... This is already said by Rav Mordechai broya It's a wonderful way to approach it. That the ability to discern these different layers and these different strands within the text brings out new richness in the text. All of a sudden, I can see different perspectives on the divine in this text. All of a sudden, the Chumich, the five books of, of Moses, are like a Talmud. They have different perspectives. Right? That, that it had it contains different perspectives. Um that doesn't negate rabbinic interpretation in the sense that the rabbis were very, very close readers of the text and they have very unique ways of reading the text. And when I'm trying to understand them, to humble myself and try to understand how they're reading the text, it's tremendously enriching. It's compelling and it's enriching and it's uh it's an Incredible way of reading, and we're limited also by our ways of reading. I mean, by reading historically, um, you limit yourself in other in other ways, right? You there are certain there's a certain production of different kinds of meaning that, that you can't engage in, um, and uh, so I, I well, think what post- does that mean? Production is a different what way. I mean is that midrashic interpretation is, is very is very creative. Mm-hmm. Right. You read you you string the words of Torah together like pearls, right? You you read Torah through Torah, you read verses through verses, you identify gaps or contradictions in in passages, and you find sort of parallel expressions or this sort of thing elsewhere. And when you put them together, when you read them together, they produce something new. Right? And They mean, might produce I'll give you I'll give you a wonderful example. Please. This is a tremendous example. Baatzaltaim yimach ha The through um laziness the ceiling droops. Right? Mm-hmm. Very nice. Okay, you don't maintain your house, the ceiling caves in. Again Simple, with the right. again the the words in Hebrew. Ba'atzaltayim Okay. Now it, basically the terms Yimach and Mekare droops. And ceiling are odd for a couple of reasons. They're odd. Um, Their usage is unusual, the form is unusual, and what the rabbis do in the Talmud, they take these expressions and they bring other verses that Yimach is like basically, that when your brother becomes poor, and it's about. Um, Basically, going into servitude to pay off debts, mm-hmm. but it's associated with poverty. And then Hamakare, uh, they associate with a verse from from Psalms, with Hamakare uh, b'maim Otav that God is the one who, um, who
0: ceilings the waters. Well, who who
1: creates a water sie- roof. a water roof? Yes, who who um, constructs a. Sealing of of water in his upper chambers, and so Hamekareh is the divine who constructs these heavenly structures. That's the divine. Yimach refers to poverty, and so when you're lazy, you render the divine poor, and it's a reference to Bitul Torah to the neglect of Torah study. And when you study, you are Mosif Koach uh, You add power the to the uh, the divine power you add strength to the divine power and when you neglect it you take away strength so when they read these things together it produces a whole different mythology of sort of um, energizing the divine through devotional study or somehow draining the divine
0: which of is of course like one of the oldest concept in religion right or well, the idea that
1: you that you can affect the the sort of divine
0: realm right. is is a a very um, is a very ancient idea. Yes, it's. Uh, I mean, I think it has. Uh, it shows up in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Napishtim receives immortality because he's the only, the only guy to um, keep the sacrifices going and therefore nourish the gods mm. after the great flood. That I think that's correct. So it's 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 as old as religious ideas get in a sense. Right. Anyway, so, so, so the, it's a very. So that's, so that's an, but that's an, exam,
1: that's an exactly. example of like really reading creatively, mm-hmm. and very often the motifs go much further back, as, as you point out. Like, okay. very, very often it's drawing on a very rich cultural heritage, literary heritage, and this sort of thing. So it's very, you know, it's enriching. One way of reading doesn't negate the other. So, what, I guess my argument is that okay, we do live in a transformed world. I can't think like the rabbis, and I can't think like the medievals, so I don't try to think like them, right? When philosophy emerged in ancient Greece, um, religious practice or the the sacrificial practice, religious rites, things like this, they hardly changed. The biggest change was a sort of an internal change. There was now a, a movement devoted to some kind of self-cultivation, contemplation of different sorts. I mean, there, there were it took all kinds of forms or all kinds of streams in philosophy, but the religious rites remained. Um, certain ancient classics of, the, uh, of Greek culture, I mean, literary classics remained. Um, and uh, so they had their sort of their literary and ritual life uh, and they had new ways of approaching things. They sometimes reinterpreted the rituals, sometimes those interpretations had older roots, sometimes they didn't. There are all kinds of examples when you open up Plato or Aristotle, um, where they make references to the, to the um, sacrifices and, and all kinds of devotional worship, um, interpretations of those practices and things like this. So, the idea that when there's a major intellectual shift, I have to throw everything out, it doesn't follow. Right. What it follows from is a particular Western European, modern Western European understanding of the division of, of life into the public and private sphere. Faith belongs to the private sphere. Religion is faith, you know, and faith belongs to the private sphere. What faith is, you know, is can, can be, I mean, the way we think about faith most of the time is in a Christian sense of acceptance of a proposition in classical Jewish thought. I don't know, you know, I don't think that's the meaning of faith in a classical Jewish context. Um, and so we sort of, we live with these assumptions that when, when you come to the modern world with its discoveries, with its science and its cosmology and its history, I now have to buy into this sort of this secular culture. Okay, so you... My th- argument... Sure. Yeah, sorry
0: no it's uh, so i' I'm, I'm trying to just get a grasp of what you've said so far that the idea the the what would you say the trend and that feels um, very natural where you sort of learn, oh well my religious uh, the religious substructure that I was sort of basing my beliefs on doesn't quite hold in the in the way that I thought it did, and then you throw out the practice with that you're saying that's not that's not a natural uh what would you say uh, a natural um, consequence of such discovery it's it's rather the natural consequence of that of such a discovery within the social socio-cultural context of the modern West where religion is generally something that it's it's fine to have just keep it at home
1: yes okay yeah. and 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 also it it's particularly I mean I guess, in a way, all religions are uh, a sort of minority culture. You know, they occupy the place of minority culture in, in our society because they're optional and they're not very public. And, um, and, um, and especially, in a, I mean, coming from a Jewish context, really? I think that um, the idea that you opt in or opt out is something people have been doing already for a couple of centuries. I mean, Jews have been doing this for a, for a while now. You opt in or you opt out, but that only makes sense when you're in a minority culture. If you're in Western society and you decide that certain aspects of your history, of your intellectual heritage are problematic, you don't you know you don't have the option of not being culturally a Westerner. That, that's not an option, right? So I think that the reading of classical Jewish literature which is Torah study, I'll, but I, I would say that is the reading, the, the deep and careful reading of this particular literary heritage and the involvement in the rites of, of Israel, right, the, in the ritual life mm-hmm. of, the Jewish, of the Jews, that is just cultural practice, that is, that's human culture. That is, that is just human culture. And you can live them in a whole range of ways. I don't think it has to look one particular way, right You mm-hmm. can look in a whole bunch of different ways. but engaging deeply in that and that being a part of the rhythm of your life and enriching your life can continue once you've discovered that things are not what they seemed. right? You can the idea that you that you just drop it, that you opt out, only works when you when you're a minor when that culture is a minority culture when you okay. have an alternative that's the dominant culture and then you can opt in and opt out um, but I think when you opt out you really lose something I think, and, not, and that's not only true of a Jewish context I think that in the, the secular west there is a gaping void uh, I think that people really want a deep engagement with um with spirituality with with practice and with thought and that that confronts death and mortality and asks like how should i live what should i be doing with my time i think people really want this and they look for it in the free market of usually westernized i mean at the moment it's, you know the fashionable way to do it is westernized eastern religion um Which by the way, I have a deep respect for Buddhism, Hinduism. I you know, I that's not I don't think that it's illegitimate at all to engage with those traditions. But the free market of those sort of of the westernized, repackaged versions, versions of Buddhism that tell you to discover the you know, your your inner divinity or something like this where where you're like Buddhism teaches that you don't exist teaches me that i don't exist it teaches me that life is suffering and you know some of the western buddhist uh, literature that i look at it looks so sort of benign in mm-hmm. that sense and it doesn't go to the heart it of doesn't it. hurt
0: anywhere near enough
1: yeah you will but really i mean buddhism is a response to pain mm-hmm. to existential suffering i mean it, re- it
0: really is and it's um the first first noble the like the noble truths are just about that
1: right and i think there's profound truth in that but also in buddhist societies the societies live a rich ritual life mm-hmm. and they have you know a rich mythical tradition the buddha isn't simply human he's not there's a wonderful book written about this The scientific buddha fantastic book uh, talking about the sort of reduction of the buddha to a like, you know, a philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you lose a lot of the substance in, in that context. And you can find that depth. With, one can find that depth within one's own tradition. You don't need to opt out in that sense. You can contain... You can, you can engage in it and live it richly. And you don't have to think anything in particular. You just have to be open to being challenged from all sides. Contemporary thought, you know, ancient thought, um, and and I don't personally believe in privileging one over the other in particular. Um, I think that um, you know the Romans loved anything old, and we love anything new in the modern sort of Western society. You, you know, you say, "Oh, it was written so long ago. Or, you know, how useful could it be?" For the Romans, something new is disturbing. Mm. You know, and uh, and in and in our world, um, like. I think we need to hold both. I think whatever has insight is, is useful to me and, you know, can be integrated well into my life. And I think there, there are insights everywhere to be found.
0: Well, I, I think that this, this idea that there are insights everywhere is uh, relatively uncontroversial. I think there are a lot of people who would say, oh, I'm not religious in any way, but I read all religious texts and I try and glean wisdom from them. Do you think that's common? Well... Okay, maybe it could be commoner. But what's even more uncommon, let's say, is I think a recognition that there are, there are sort of um, wisdoms built into the practices. That like you can't, you can't these, the, the, old, the old wise sages are trying to teach you stuff, not merely by um, what they're telling you in the written word, but by what they recommend you do every day mm. and think mm-hmm. about so that that seems to be missing, and it, it seems like a big part of why that's missing is well, you can kind of you know be brought up with a certain religious perspective and then you can ha- you can have it collide with the modern world and shatter. And from that point on, maybe you can keep reading the books, but the um, something the sense I get from talking to a lot of people who've gone through this is that they go afterwards to their uh, what place of worship and they'll they'll stand there and pray and it'll feel false and empty and they'll feel like shams. How do you address that? How do you respond to that?
1: So I think there are a few ways to approach it. I think you're right. I think that's that's in some ways a bigger challenge. Um, firstly, I think that the, the rituals in general, not just prayer, but public reading of texts and um, and I mean, so for example, public recitation of the Torah, um, participation in public study, for example, um, odd, you know, there's, um, things like this, but certainly also, I think, also a prayer. I think that ritual is like a tree that bears many varied fruits. You know, it's, it doesn't have a single purpose. It's developed over time in communities and it responds to all kinds of different aspects of our lives, right? It, it meets a whole bunch of different needs. Some of those needs are social, Some of them are psychological. Some of them um, fit in with aspects of this. For example, we were talking about the mythology of strengthening the divine, invigorating the divine. Mm -hmm. Some of them fit in with that kind of narrative. And that can be very empowering. Um, Some some of them, you know, I I personally approach, I've approached prayer in a whole bunch of different ways over the years. What's allowed me to do that is the fact that I didn't stop. You know, what allowed me to do that is the fact that I just kept on going with it. Sometimes it didn't feel so rewarding. I guess just taking the time to sit and basically read these traditional texts each day, there was something grounding about it. I still notice new things in them. I still So, it, in a way, it's like study. Um, and sometimes, and I guess this is maybe the harder part, especially, for example, on the holiest days of the Jewish calendar, I think... Stepping into the mythology like suspending disbelief and stepping into it can be transformative I'll love give oh, that's talking Jewish I'll'll give, I'll give a Christian example the, so okay so God loves humans so much that uh, that uh, God produces a son sent what sent, well, god embodies the logos in flesh okay so there is this divine being and in, in flesh that it, that has come to you know uh, guide the human beings and whatever and then uh that god gets nailed to a plank of wood this human god gets nailed to a plank of wood and killed whoa whoa, 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 whoa. let's not go over what gets nailed to two planks of wood oh okay fine uh that's important um and, and gets killed And descends, you know, into uh, the netherworld, is resurrected, becomes the sacrifice by which all of humanity is redeemed, and then we eat that God. Okay, so that's a Christian myth. I mean, it's the the Christian myth, right? Mm -hmm. Jews have a more varied repertoire, usually not quite as strikingly weird as that. If you're in the ancient world and you think about gods and sacrifice, the idea of the God becoming the sacrifice and then eating the God, that's very weird. And and there were a lot of people who found that myth. A lot of Romans found that myth very very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, now, without talking about how much that makes makes sense rationally, the process of going into church and participating in this sacrificial feast, where the God, the God has sacrificed itself for you, right? That God, the God is the sacrifice and you attain intimacy with that God through your shared humanity and you're lifted up. You're lifted out of your doom. Uh, you know we're just we're, we're doomed, we're limited, we're, we're mortal, we're facing death and you're lifted out of that by this intimate process of ingesting the sacrifice, the God's sacrifice of itself. That's really powerful, that's transformative, right? And my master's advisor was um, was Christian, and he said to me, "Look, you know the Protestants—they talk about that this, that this is symbolic. The Eucharist is symbolic, but for the symbol to work, for the symbol to be, you know, um, to be compelling enough to be to feel transformative, you have to pretend that it's working. Mm. You have to." buy into this idea of it transforming and it transforming you for it to work. So, that is a story that I think has all kinds of problems with it. I mean, I think the Christian myth, it's not one that I'm entirely comfortable with, but it's one that I I understand its power.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, in a Jewish context, we have other myths. We have times of the year that we're trying to bring the rain. We have times of the year that we're crowning God at times of the year that we're bringing the rain, we're trying to arouse divine compassion to sustain us. So Sukkot is largely about rain. Um, and, uh, and Rosh Hashanah, we're sort of... Uh, it's like a, a cosmic coronation, you know, and we're being judged. And then there's this period of judgment that's just before the coming of the rain that we're so dependent on. And those myths, those stories... Even if I don't really believe that there is something sitting there listening separate from me in some parallel dimension, listening to my prayers, even if I don't believe that, to step into that sort of mythical narrative and just suspend my disbelief is transformative. I experience it as transformative. And I don't have to buy into it ontologically. I don't really have to think that this is happening, you know, on, on some... I just have to... For me, it's an acknowledgement of my depend, of my dependence on nature and it, and of, of our needs, our, our dependence on what comes from beyond us. You know, this is, this is... The cosmos beyond us is bringing us our nourishment. We're dependent on it. And so much of modernity is about, you know, modernity and modernism is about... This triumphant human being conquering nature and this sort of mm. thing, and I think the, the idea of the, the wisdom of this idea of dependence, um, or all of all of these myths, I think respond to deep human needs. And when I step into them and just let them be the rituals with their mythical underpinnings or overlays, because I'm not sure which precedes which. Mm-hmm. Often the ritual precedes the the story often R- rituals often have very ancient roots I'm not talking about rabbinic prayer specifically although even that the idea of joining in with this sort of heavenly choir in kedusha and things like that even that has like you know this ancient mythical um, sort of resonance but um, but certainly things like originally the Passover sacrifice and what we now commemorate in festive feasts and that sort of thing Um Around, around Passover, that sort of thing, um, they, the rituals themselves have very deep roots, and I think that they respond to a range of different human needs. I okay. think that they... And you can suspend... One can suspend one's disbelief and step into it, and it's, it's like role-playing in a way. But once you name it that, it becomes less powerful. So I try not to name it that when I'm doing
0: it. That's very interesting. So when you say it's, it's, it becomes less powerful... Something that occurred to me uh, recently was, that, as, as a sort of minimum bar, um, religion in general, and I suppose Judaism in particular, is a sort of really elaborate, very intense game of Dungeons & Dragons that's been going on for a couple of thousand years, a few thousand years. And it's, um, it's like every game of Dungeons & Dragons, like, you can walk in and go, like, this is stupid, they're just pieces of paper and, and a dice, there's nothing else here. Um, or you can go in and be like, I'm getting into this world as intensely as I can. And I, I feel like that's a, that, will, that gets you a good, a good chunk of the way there in some sense. But in another sense, it's like that's not the sort of, um, the what would you say, the high cost, high reward version of, of all authentic religious practice seems sort of out of reach to the to someone who's going in and be like oh well i'll i'll fake it for a while yeah
1: i think when you encounter the profundity of some of these ideas it means that you 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 stop pretending Mm. You, you integrate those insights and they become deeply important to you i'll give you an example of the image of god please the image of god the divine creates a being in the world in its own image right Now, when you look at this, I mean, there's a whole medieval interpretive tradition, ancient and medieval interpretive tradition, that basically turns this into a metaphor, right? But if you look at it in its ancient context and in some of its rabbinic interpretation, you start to see the following. And especially, this is with the insights of biblical criticism as well. Because that opening narrative is is considered to be a priestly text. And so you've got... An ancient, ancient Near Eastern priestly tradition. Firstly, that takes the div- a representation of the divine out of the temple sanctuary. Right? What do you do in an ancient Near Eastern temple? You have um, a statue of the divine, which has been imbued with the divine. I believe it's called a mish Mishpi, Is that what it's called? So, in in, Mesopot- in a Mesopotamian context, you have Rituals that bring the divine into that statue, mm-hmm. right? So you house the divine there, you serve the divine, you feed the divine, you dress the divine. Um, so you have a temple, it's an ancient Near Eastern temple um, of the Israelite priests,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: what do they do? They take the representation out, out of the temple. There's no representation of the divine. Oh, except there is a representation of the divine, you and me. We are the statues of the divine. Now, in an ancient Near Eastern context, this idea of emptying the divine out of the temple, we have no representation, but every single one of us is a statue of the divine, and that is what anchors the prohibition of taking a human life. That transforms the way you look at another human being. That idea, I think, when you sit with that idea in its ancient Near Eastern context, it is just, I mean, to me, that is as close to prophecy as you get. That is an, an insight, a creative shift that is unimaginable, unimaginable before it happens. Once it's happened, you look at it and you go, what on earth happened there? This is a transformation in how we view another human being and the divine. It is something else. So, and that shapes, I mean, I try to make that shape how I approach life. Like really, I try to integrate this idea of the Im- of the image of being created in the image of divine of the divine. I try to make that shape how I relate to other human beings and to myself. And especially in the rabbinic tradition, they actually talk about self-care um, in the context of, uh, of being created in a divine image. So Hilelazaken um, in uh, Avod Rabbi Natan, Hilelazaken, Hilel the elder, bumps into His students, and they say, uh, "Oh, into into people they see they see uh, Hilal Hazaken emerging or walking along." They say, "Where where are you going?" And he says, "Oh, to do a great mitzvah, to perform a great divine commandment, a meritorious act." And they say, "What?" He says, "Going to the bathhouse." The bathhouse is a disgusting place. Right, it's full of human. uh, It depends. Depends which bathhouse. It depends. I know a good one. (laughs) It depends which bathhouse, um, uh, and it depends if you, what, what you enjoy getting up to in life. But for the rabbis, it's not such a, uh, not such a desirable place. And they say to him, that's a mitzvah. And he says, yes, I'll teach you something. It's a kalbachobah. This is an argument a fortiori, right? The person who's hired to clean the statues, of the, the representations of the king in the royal palace is paid a salary, right? Now, we who were created in the image of the divine of the supreme king of kings, how much more so? So, it works on two levels one, one's human, one's divine, one king's human, one's divine, right? Mm-hmm. Two, you are the image and you're cleaning yourself. This is trippy, right? <laughs> and but but this idea of like caring for oneself as you know, this trying to live in a dignified way that honours and respects yourself and also adopting a devotional stance towards every other human being, that to me is just profoundly... I mean, I think it's a really healing idea. I think it's a really wonderful idea. And so you're not talking about... On that level, you're not talking about buying in to a story. You're talking about buying into the, the things that an older culture found profoundly important and accessing that important, those, those originally alien insights. When you first encounter that, it's alien. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it, then it becomes compelling. I find it compelling. So it's not... I'm not saying everybody's going to find that specific um, point in that particular way, you know, as compelling as I do. But I think in general ancient cultures don't lack um, the depth and, um, and force that of, our, of our own of the, of the modern western culture they, they at least compete with it, they're at least as compelling and when we access that, when we read them humbly and with openness without feeling like I have to think exactly what these ancients think but you encounter them on their own terms, it expands your world. It expands your potential for living, you know, a fulfilled and um, enriching life, I think. Mm. So, uh, so, the, so on the level of um, sort of suspension of disbelief, I agree with you. But in terms of the actual content, you're talking about something else.
0: So you sort of, uh, you, once you start playing the game very quickly, you start receiving things and you're like, okay, this is far more than I thought I was going to get out right. of this.
1: Right. And there, there are a few things like that, that I think like the image of God that I think are, that are as transformative. That's like, that's a very, that, I think that's a very powerful example. Do you want to share a couple of others? I think that Sabbath, Shabbat is just mind blowing. I think it's an incredible, incredible idea. Um, Oh, taking, I mean, it has also ancient Near Eastern roots. I mean, the idea of the Shapatu or or whatever it is, the ancient, um, again, an ancient Mesopotamian practice, but it was basically that there were inauspicious days to work. And so you have these days, re- sort of regular cal- calendrical days of rest, but that was for the royals the, the and the priesthood. Uh, uh, sort of um, on the calendar, I oh, think. Oh, calendrical. Yeah, like yeah, of the calendar.
0: Of the calendar, right. yeah.
1: These regular days of rest, and we've got the priests and the royals and this sort of thing, and it's inauspicious to do your business so you don't do it because you might fail. In Israelite tradition, and again, going to biblical criticism, to, to contemporary biblical scholarship, every single strand of biblical thought has the Sabbath. And most of them put it, the possible exception of E, but E is kind of incomplete. I mean, it's, it's unclear how much of E we have but it's in E's ancient code that E um, uh, integrates into itself. So it's in one of the most ancient passages there in the Bible, um, and every other document makes it supremely important. It's in, the, it's in both versions of the 10 commandments that we know, and it's in the 10 commandments of, of J, which has a separate 10 things. It's, so it's in, it's in all of them, and it's also integrated into the creation myth of P, and um and it prefaces for the for the priestly documents the um the uh sanctuary the desert sanctuary the tabernacle is one of the supremely important things it's this you know the idea of housing the divine, bringing the divine into the world, and then this devotion towards the divine that is completely central to the priestly um to the priestly tradition, and they preface that whole passage with the Sabbath. Um, And that, so it's supremely important. So it seems to be like quite an early universal Israelite um, shift or innovation as a universal practice. And and then it's framed, certainly uh, in some sources, it's framed in terms of basically liberation from slavery. It's a whole liberation thing. The idea of a society at rest, um, it humanizes your servants. You, you, you keep Shabbat so that you will remember being liberated and all the people around you have to observe that, um, so that so that you remember, and I think implicitly, so that you look at them as having been in your position and it shifts how you treat them. I think it's it's a vision of a just society, which in prophetic passages that actually becomes explicit again. And then, then you ask the question, why does it have to be built into creation? The Mechilta,
0: so one of the most ancient Midrashim, so rabbinic Wait, interpretations... Just, just to clarify, when you say built into creation this is a reference to the fact that it is part of the passages on sabbath one of the recurring themes is for six in six days did god make the earth and on the seventh he rested therefore you shall rest so yes but that is obviously a reference
1: to the creation narrative the original the yeah genesis one yeah genesis one right where you have the world created in six days and on the seventh god rests okay so the Mechilta says does god have to rest no, it's so that you make a Kalvachomer, it's so that you make an argument a fortiori. If God rested, how much more so should you rest? But it's basically consequentialist. It's basically saying that creation narrative is kind of rhetorical. It's a really powerful way of telling you to keep Shabbos, wow. right? Which I think is, is an incredible interpretation. But, um, but well, so I think the Sabbath so is God
0: really... So God is this by example in this, in this chapter... He's like, I don't need a rest, but it's really important that you do, so I will, just to make the point.
1: According to the Mechilta. According to the Mechilta, yes. who is a... That's, the most, that's one of the most ancient rabbinic um, co- collections of rabbinic interpretation of, of Midrash. Cool. Um, and um, so there's, there's that, the whole narrative of liberation from slavery, that your sort of national ethnic narrative is that we're slave stock.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, and... In some versions, we're still slaves of the divine, and that's liberating. That's liberating from human oppression. Um, I think that's incredible. I think that there's also a tendency in a later sort of um, a later stratum of the priestly texts, which is known of, of the priestly code, which is known as H, the Holiness Code, um, towards universalizing priestly practice. So this idea of a whole society of priests which has earlier roots mm-hmm. but it's really fleshed out there um, I think that's transformative this idea of I'm living a, a life of priestly service of like e- everybody the whole community is living this you're trying to be a, a whole society on some level of priests
0: this is this this uh, is of course like very uh, easily centered around the Verse um, for you shall be what is it? Mm-hmm. A, uh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, that I believe is actually usually said to be in an earlier stratum so not in H. That's why I say it has earlier roots mm-hmm. um, but it's really fleshed out in this whole um, basically in, in a whole chunk of the Torah which, which seems to be like a, a later, a
0: later level of of pain. Something that I figured I I may as well float because it just it just it just brought it up. Yeah, but uh, I'll just clarify.
1: Please. That is why I say that for me, biblical criticism like that academic it approach makes it
0: richer up that. Exactly
1: brings out voices that are there anyway, mm-hmm. and people notice them anyway, right? But all of a sudden, it brings them into much sharper relief. You can see different layers to it that are enriching. And on the one hand the rabbis didn't think like that. Of course they didn't think like that. And, I, and I'm not I, that doesn't bother me. I don't think that's a tremendous limitation. They had a tradition about the authorship of this text. But, um, but for me I now have learned things that don't show with that. I can't unknow them. But what I can do is approach the same ancient texts with an attentiveness to those questions, and it brings out a, a, a you know, a, I think, a greater richness in the text for me.
0: Fair. Well, it's Go it's uh, happily, oh, it's, it's interesting you say specifically the nation of priesthood concept because that's something that struck me quite um, quite powerfully recently. Um, when it, I, I think what the, the prompt was, I was thinking about the um, uh, the Moses story. And how Moses is raised in the uh, the the palace of Pharaoh, according to the story. And something that's really interesting um, that uh, a friend of mine shared with me was that there's a that there's a passage in Genesis that's like almost verbatim uh, is the same as a passage from ancient Egypt about the way that Ptah created the world. And um, that sort of twigged it for me because Just sort of just trying to pay attention to what like the clues that are embedded in the text that we don't normally think about the way that um, the Egyptian society structured itself was you had the You know the, the laborers and the, the and then maybe above them the soldiers And then you have like the priestly class that have all sorts of their own individual secrets going on And then at the very top of that you have the Pharaoh and his family and so they are, in a sense, like at the, at the apex, I mean, at the top of the pyramid, right? So they're at the apex of these um, priestly cults. And so they have all the old mystery cult wisdom. So, just like, just like the, the idea that Moses is, like, was raised as an Egyptian, was raised with that, with that sort of idea, then sort of went, hey, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead this slave uprising and take everyone out into the desert on this long vision quest. And then, like, when they're ready, I'll, I'll shepherd them into a new land and we'll start a new country together. That, what a great idea. Um, like, this idea is that the sort of twig for me was when I noticed that um, that goes really well with this, um, with this historical um, piece, which is that circumcision was practiced by the Egyptian priests. So the idea, like, the significance of the entire nation being circumcised Within that, within that cultural context, is all of us are priests. So, in a, in a sense, like you know, there's that that brings us to an answer to the old question of what is a Jew, and um, a Jew in a sense is a member of the most successful renegade priestly sect of ancient Egypt.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, so firstly, I've never really looked deeply into the Egyptian context and, and its potential significance for uh, for circumcision, but um, in terms of a sensitivity to the those layers of association going on with that with the narrative. Yeah, I think that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> why, why not? Okay. Um, in, yeah, in, but in terms of in terms of but then the, the, so when when you say the most successful renegade Egyptian priestly, uh, oh by the way, you know there's a whole Levite link to the Egyptian context as well. the, the Levites disproportionately have Egyptian names. Um, in uh, in Tanakh in general, in the Hebrew Bible, they mm-hmm. they have lots of Egyptian names, and also they don't have land. But it's and there are all kinds of different interpretations for why they wouldn't have land. But, the, but one way of understanding it outside of the biblical narrative, so they just showed up. Is today. that you have pretty much yeah yeah, yeah. yeah after yeah. the after the shift of the Israelites to uh, urban life and and agricultural agricultural and and urban life you. This, this basically, this bunch of Egyptian, like priests, yeah, priests of some sort, turn up and uh, and they don't have any land, so they're maintained in the temples and they have their own network of, of, their own sort of kinship network, but they're not, yeah, they don't have land, and then the Bible has to explain why they don't have land. There are a bunch of different
0: interpretations so for why,
1: but the, um, yeah, I, I just, I guess in in a certain way. For me, for me personally, I had the good luck to to go through this process of integrating this kind of, of, of integrating academic approaches into my own spiritual life. Mm-hmm. Um, with I, I had the good luck to have teachers that enabled that to to not have uh, in my home environment um, tremendous coercion around it. And so I guess psychologically it was less painful for me in many ways yeah. to deal with it and go through this process. I did it on my own terms. Um, but um, but I, think that it, I think that once one recognises that everything you do is a choice, you're choosing to opt in or you're choosing to opt out, it's a choice that you make. And that you don't have to excise whole chunks of your mind to either accept this wholeheartedly or that wholeheartedly without any questions, without any complication. We're going... Hopefully, we're all going through a lifelong process of development, transformation, maturation, gaining more insights. I want to maintain that through my entire life, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think once you identify that you don't need to let go, you don't need to reject in that sense, in that way. Um then it's really enriching. It can be really, really enriching and it can be liberating. And uh, I understand that for a lot of people who have been through similar processes, it's not so simple. I mean that there, there are it's, it's also psychologically difficult if, if you have, um, you know, like I'll give you the example of, of my spouse. So she, she when she thinks about religious practice yeah. and especially prayer, she thinks about being made to recite her prayers again because the teacher suspected that she had pretended to say her prayers. She, because she went to a religious school, she thinks of it as shoving stuff down her throat. And on the one hand, she, she's drawn to some, to some kinds of religious practice. And on the other hand, every time she comes too close to it, there's this bitter taste mm. of, of this coercion in her childhood. So I understand that it's not so simple for for people, but I think that if one does the work of, you know, coming to one's own understanding and letting things be in a way, just containing them, and being open to all insights, then, you know, if if you can go through that process, I think that it, it can be just tremendously, enriching, and it it, it expands. Your, your sense of self. And for me, my engagement also in this particular tradition, in rabbinic Jewish tradition, um, I find, for me personally, I feel that it makes, it makes me feel interconnected with humanity because humans live specific cultures. Even Western universalists, they think they don't live a specific culture, mm-hmm. but they live a specific culture. Mm-hmm. We all live specific cultures. And when I live mine richly, on my own terms, but richly and deeply... That that's a connection to me to all of the cultures of you know, of, of India and Southeast Asia and the Middle East and, you know, across Europe and, you know, it, and, and Australia, you know, the original cultures of Australia. This is a connection to humanity. It's living a rich life of myth and ritual and integrating that into my daily experience that, to me, that's a very fundamentally human experience and it's it, yeah, I don't find that leaving that particular culture limiting I find that, it, it, for me it makes me feel
0: connected to humanity Raf, I could speak to you all day but we've run out of time just before we go you have a mantra for us I do and this is from the Tomer Devara, correct? that's correct could you give us a bit of background to this one? sure so, so firstly, the background starts with
1: the with the Zohar, right? So in the Zohar, so this is the most expansive uh, classic of Kabbalistic thought that started circulating in the late thirteenth century in Spain, and um, there there is a part of the Zohar called the called the Idrarabha, which um, speaks about instead of talking about these ten modalities of divine um, of divine interaction with the world, um, the ten sphirot, it talks about partsufim, the faces of the divine. And one of those is the Artika, the holy ancient one. And so there's, there's one aspect, I won't go through the, the whole sort of system, but there's one aspect of the divine which is sort of reactive. It's called the God of Israel and called the small face, Zeyeranpin. Um, and it, it is identified as sort of the God of the biblical narratives and this sort of thing. And it's reactive. And this is one aspect of the divine. It's reactive. It seizes upon negative behavior and this sort of thing. And it punishes. And it's full of, of harsh judgment. It's also got compassion in it. But it's looking at the world. It's sort of facing the world and responding to all of this mess, all of this um, injustice in the world and responding to that. So the way to get it to chill out, to relax is to get it to gaze up at the Holy Ancient One. The Holy Ancient One is pure love and compassion, uh, gushing being, just, it just, it nourishes everything. And it's always, it's always gushing love. When that love doesn't come into the world, it's like, uh, it's like on a cloudy day. It's not because the sun stopped shining, but there's stuff in the way. But it's always shining. It's just always, gushing love and being and the so in this part of the Zohar it talks about the the, the so it goes through the Nim, the configurations or adornments of the of the beard of the holy ancient one and um, and those are in these verses meaning that they're interpretations of the following the verses I'm about to read to you from ...the prophet Micah, right? Um, So in his book... ...The Date Palm of Deborah... ...Tomin Dvorah... ...Rav Moshe Cordovero... ...the Ramak... ...16th century... uh, ...Jewish Mystic... ...basically... ...takes that model... ...in the first chapter... ...and he goes through them... ...and he explains how... ...each of these modes of behaviour... ...is... ...expresses something of the divine... And needs to be emulated by human beings. Um, and we do this so that we bring our inner life, so that we bring our inner life into alignment with our outer form which is the divine image. So we have to be in the inner and outer divine image. The outer divine image you're already in. The inner divine image is your, um, your actions and dispositions. and if you don't bring them into alignment, you render your appearance in the divine image a lie. You make it a lie. He says, You make the form into a lie. In, you, you render it dishonest. So, the, so, you have, so, that's a very strong, powerful argument for bringing your inner life into alignment with, with the divine form. And the, um, and the method that he gives for this is basically you walk around reciting these verses all the time. They're always in your mouth. They're always in your mind. And when you come across a difficult situation, you have to identify which of those modes of behaviour is appropriate in that particular situation. So, allowing oneself to be the humiliated divine. The divine is always humiliated. And sometimes you have to just be that right um and just feel that and that's just what's going on and love the person anyway um and the the other is um you know another is uh sort of can there, there are ways of letting go of anger or that sort of thing towards a person's past behavior towards you that he discusses and So he for each for each expression in these verses he gives a sort of a fleshed-out explanation but the idea is that we're always reciting these verses and that you come back to them when you basically want to react negatively and You and We but we know that we need to sort of embody that ticker and he says that when those situations arise um, you say to yourself this situation is dependent on such and such a disposition, and I am going to hold on to that so it doesn't disappear from the world. So, you're the presence of that divine mode of behavior in the world. You are actually, at that moment, the presence of that divine mode of behavior. So, these are the verses. <laughs> who is a god like you who pardons iniquity and overlooks transgression for the remnant of his heritage he does not maintain his wrath forever for he desires kindness he will once again show us mercy he will suppress our iniquities. You will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Grant truth to Jacob, kindness to Abraham, as you swore to our forefathers in days of old. Amen. <laughs> A pleasure as always. The pleasure was entirely mine. Thank you. Thank
0: you. To Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike building Jerusalem.